And my struggle was this. You may well believe that I had set out sad enough. I came on a sad errand. Now, flung at me like frolic or insolence, there came as if it were a voice, no words, but if you made it into words, it would be, why should your heart not dance? It's a, the measure of my folly that my heart almost answered, why not? I had to tell myself over like the lesson, the infinite reasons it had not to dance. My heart to dance? Mine whose love was taken from me? I, the ugly princess who must never look for other love, the drudge of the king, the jailer of hateful Redival, perhaps to be murdered or turned out as a beggar when my father died. For who knew what Gloam would do then? And yet, it was a lesson I could hardly keep in my mind. The sight of the huge world put mad ideas into me, as if I could wander away, wander forever, see strange and beautiful things, one after the other, to the world's end. The freshness and wetness all about me, I had seen nothing but drought and withered things for many months before my sickness, made me feel that I had misjudged the world. It seemed kind and laughing, as if its heart also danced. Even my ugliness I could not quite believe in. Who can feel ugly when the heart meets delight? It is as if somewhere inside, within the hideous face and bony limbs, one is soft, fresh, lissom and desirable. I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. Welcome back to the Inklings Variety Hour. This is our fifth episode on C.S. Lewis's final novel, Till We Have Faces, A Myth Retold. The novel is a retelling of the Cupid and Psyche myth from the perspective of Psyche's supposedly jealous and spiteful older sister, who's transformed by Lewis's art and imagination into one of the most sympathetic and compelling characters, for my money anyway, in modern fiction. Originally conceived by its author as an attack against the gods, the more mature Lewis turns it into a meditation on possessive love, both of humans and God. I'm Chris Pipkin, assistant professor of English at Emmanuel College. With me to discuss the book is Annika Smith, lawyer by night and superhero by day. <laughs> Are you doing, Annika? I think that might be backwards, but uh, that's pretty nah. good. No. I would sounds like I'm in night court. I'm I'm doing okay. How are you? Doing fine. Doing fine. Part of the reason I like that um, passage that we opened with is that it really highlights the struggle against joy that this main character Oriol has uh, really throughout this this book. Yeah, I the title page of this chapter for me, I had written Orwell's battle against joy. Um, yeah. Yeah, similarly, it, it, I think especially 
because it's C.S. Lewis and she's going up this beautiful mountain and encountering all these things we associate with Lewis and joy and awakening and Sengzukt, it's, it, I think it heightens that sense of, okay, this is clearly the invitation and coming out to her that Lewis has described in so many other places coming out to all of us from heaven uh, and to have her resistance made so clear um, and active, her will and her, uh, her complaint, her bitterness and her clinging to, and it's almost like a, a seduction. I mean, we'll get into it more, but a, a seduction of the gods of inviting her to delight in the beauty of nature. Uh, and she, she believes setting her up for agony. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that's partly because what, what has just happened in chapter um, seven and eight is her, uh, her, her sister who in many ways is like her child. Psyche um, has been sacrificed in order to make things better in Gloom. Um, in the in the in the kingdom where Oriol is a princess, um, and uh, Oriol has decided once she's over her own sickness um, by the end of chapter eight, she's decided that she was going to go um, and find Psyche's body um, where she had previously been uh, kind of abandoned to wild animals or whatever other kind of fate happens to someone who's been chained, you know, and left outside. So she is um, in, in chapter nine preparing to go on this journey, but she partly because of her melancholia um, because of her, her depression, it seems like um, just doesn't want to take that step um, to, to go up the mountain to fetch her to get her sister's body. Cause she says she can't imagine life after that after she's done that last thing as long as it's as long as this task is still before her she has something else to do it's almost like leaving a little bit of 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 your drink left in the glass so you don't have to get up and go you have the excuse of it right or something that you're holding on to 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 have the the something keeping you tethered something keeping you there um and this description of depression first i mean C.S. Lewis does grief better than anyone. Uh, but the, the, it reminds me also of the sense you get uh, when someone dies and you have a funeral and you, you are very sad that they are dead, but your grief, uh, you're not left alone in it because there's so much to do with the preparations. Mm-hmm. And we often say that funerals are for, they're for the living um, and then they help the living process. And it's interesting thinking of Psyche here as she prepares to go, um, I'm sorry, not Psyche, Orwell prepares to go get Psyche's bones. She's, this is what's keeping her going. This is her purpose. This is the, the processing um, for her because after that she sees the chasm, the emptiness, um, it says here, once I had gathered Psyche's bones, then it seemed all that concerned her would be over and done with. Already, even with the great act still ahead, there was flowing in upon me from the barren years beyond it, a dejection such as I had never conceived. 
It was not at all like the agonies I had endured before and have endured since. I did not weep nor wring my hands. I was like water put into a bottle and left in a cellar, utterly motionless, never to be drunk, poured out, spilled, or shaken. The days were endless. The very shadows seemed nailed to the ground as if the sun no longer moved. Yeah, that that despair and that that feeling almost of ennui that I'm just seeing nothing but barrenness and darkness and emptiness ahead of you is so right on. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what pulls her out of it? Bardia. Bardia. And this the is the best. These, these chapters are interesting because the Fox doesn't really, for the first time, play much of a part at all. Mm. His role is almost sort of replaced by uh, Bardia offering his own brand of wisdom. Um, he, he says, Lady, I'll make free with you. I've known sorrow too. I've been as you are now. I have sat and felt the hours drawn out to the length of years, right? Which is so interesting because you think, you know, at first when you meet him, you think, oh, well, he's nice enough, but he, he seems, you know, just like a normal soldier, right? But he has enough sort of emotional empathy and, um, and intuition to, uh, to, to see that she is depressed, which obviously, like, of course she would be, right? But, um, but, but, to, but to understand what that's like and understand that time is just sort of drawing out for her, right? Um, and he says, what cured me was the wars, I don't think there's any other cure, right? So what do you do when you're sad? You fight. Um, and and that'll, <laughs> that'll bring you out of it, yeah. um, according to uh, Bardia. Uh, well, you know, it's interesting because I, like, if you have ever been at a loss, people often will say, you, you know, what helps you is work you have work to do, you have something and like that purpose and that absorption, it almost reminded me of what all the, the Cal Newport type um, new media influencer people talk about as um, flow, right? Uh-huh. Like when you, when you get into flow, um, the, the description of how there was no time for her to be, for all her ill thoughts, right? Yeah, it's it is really funny. There's something about that sort of work and that sort of routine. I, I remember being depressed for like no good reason at all when I was in my uh, early 20s, and I was also working at Chick Fil A, <laughs> and those things may or may not have you know uh, had something to do with each other. But I also know that the only thing that would sort of shake me out of my ennui was like I got to get to work and I got to do do this stuff right, um, right. And, and I can't like only go when I feel like it. Right. Um, which is part of why it concerns me sometimes when we go out of our way sometimes to accommodate students who are suffering from depression or from anxiety, Mm. because I worry that them being able to sort of get out of work and maybe the people like helping them with this, tell them you need to keep up your studies or whatever, but that is a valid excuse for not doing your, schoolwork or, or whatever, very possibly sucks you down deeper into it. Um, and uh, I always kind of am a, a little bit nervous about 
you know, that becoming of, as even though it is a valid excuse, it's obviously a valid excuse, but it's also like having yeah. that thought of as a valid excuse might make the problem worse, um, which, uh, right. But yeah. it might rob you from actually having your mind turn to something else and, and being pulled out of right. the depression. Right. Yeah. Um, and being given time and structure and things that really help. I also felt like it, you know, we're, we're recording this um, here in March and a lot of people are talking about the, the anniversary of COVID lockdowns and um, reflecting on the last year, which is crazy. Uh, the, the hours and the, honestly, the lack of structure for those of us who are still remote um, and, and the way it exacerbates depression and grief is really terrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I feel like Bardia, man, and I, I wish we could, we could hang and you could teach me swordsmanship because that would be a lot better right now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and and this kind of work, obviously, it's 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 different from like having to like work at Chick Fil A or doing your studies or something like that, right? This right. is this is very physical work. And one of the things she ends up saying is, uh, you know, as they're as they're practicing fighting, it was the hardest work I'd ever done. And while it lasted, one could think of nothing else. I said not long before that work and weakness are comforters, but sweat is the kindest creature of the three, far better than philosophy as a cure for ill thoughts, right? So uh, Lewis throwing some shade, Boethius way, possibly. No, no, uh, this, now this is me coming at you with a Straussian reading. Yeah, um, do it. This isn't, uh, Lewis loved Boethius. Oh, so I, I, yeah, I, I know you know, but I think he's showing us here that, um, that Orwell, is still so immature, right? And and so that she cannot appreciate philosophy. I would say the same way eventually she cannot mm. appreciate the invitation of the gods to joy mm. and to delight. Mm. Um, that she rejects it. Like her her experience is the water of the fox. It's not the it's not the river that she then crosses later on in chapter 10 that we'll get to later yeah i don't know i don't know um it's lewis i don't know as philosophical as he is um he does not share a lot of the philosophers i don't know a lot of a lot of the philosophers i guess uh snobbishness uh in in other words like he he seems to he seems to really value and appreciate people who you know possibly do not have the kind of access to the life of the mind that he, that he has um I, I don't know like bardia seems to me like a homely character like the beavers or mm. like um possibly philosophy is necessary for people who have certain dispositions um already but for bardia i don't know that it would be like it seems like what Bardia is doing is working fine for Bardia, right? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. But, uh, so, but how is what Bardia is doing not what he's giving her in in the training? It is like okay, your mind is meant to not dwell on this to and to be drawn out of yourself. 
So let's, uh, let's absorb your mind. That's not mm -hmm. anti-philosophical. It's true. It's true. Yeah. This it's, it's what is, what is Orwell's, what is she calling philosophy here? Not what is philosophy writ large? Yeah, it could be. Um, I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm open to it. I'm open to the idea. I don't, I don't know how to say it better than it sounds like something that Lewis would say, but I don't have any more good basis for saying so. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's very possible that this is a, a defect in Oriol. And she's spoken disparagingly of philosophy before, right? Uh, we had to work really hard at what he calls philosophy to get a poem out of him and, and things like that. So yeah. Could be. I really like this exchange between between Oriol and Bardia, uh, you know, when they when they decide to uh, have uh, this training session, right? And he's he's like, you know, it would be a hundred shames not to train anyone who has such a gift for the sport as you look like having. No, said I, leave me alone, unless we can use sharps and you would kill me. That's women's talk by your favor. You'd never say that again once you'd seen it done. Come, I'll not leave off till you do. A big kindly man, some years older than herself, can usually persuade even a sad and sullen girl. In the end, I rose and went in with him. That shield is too heavy, he said. Here's the one for you. Slip it on thus. And understand from the outset, your shield is a weapon, not a wall. You're fighting with it every bit as much as your sword. Watch me now. You see the way I twist my shield, make it flicker like a butterfly? There'd be arrows and spears and sword points flying off in every direction if we were in a hot engagement. Now, here's your sword. No, not like that. You want to grip it firm, but light. It's not a wild animal that's trying to run away from you. That's better. Now, your left foot forward, and don't look at my face. Look at my sword. It isn't my face going to fight you. And now I'll show you a few guards, um, which I think is just so wonderfully detailed. Yeah. We, we have the description of the fight, basically, of what he's doing without any actual description. It's mm -hmm. all dialogue. It's yeah. great. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, and, it, and it sounds like a, war, a kindly war veteran who knows what he's doing, explaining how, how to do it to a, to a new recruit. I wonder, like, I wonder how much of this is right. You know, like I wonder. I wonder if you're really not supposed to look in someone's <laughs> eyes, right? And I wonder. I wonder if you are supposed to use your shield as a weapon. And and like I, I know Lewis fought. I don't think he fought in this style. A right? bayonet is um, different than yeah. a yeah than a sword and yeah. a shield. Yeah. So I just like to know if anyone out there is an expert on ancient weaponry. <laughs> <laughs> Should uh, your shield flicker light up like a butterfly, sting yeah, like a bee? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah that's probably where uh, Muhammad Ali got it from. Um, mm -hmm. a, a <laughs> he read man. a lot of C.S. Lewis. Yeah, yeah. I, I also wonder, like, to what extent is Lewis drawing on his own experience in war here in any way? Or is trench warfare just way too different to battle, you know, where you're fighting with swords and shields i don't i mean none of us know trench warfare but um right yeah that's a good question because i would think the descriptions we have seem like there's a lot of waiting and long moments and then sometimes charges up a hill right to go take the next battlement but mm. Um, it seems very different from no one can be sad while they're using wrist and hand and eye and every muscle of their body. Right. Um, 
yeah, I, it seems to be more something about hard physical work, um, which Lewis was not good at. So I, I think this is uh, props to his imagination because it's, I think it's true. Like if, if you take up uh, heavy gardening or, or something very physical, um, that, is, that is true. But I, I don't think Lewis had that experience. I also wonder um, if it has something to do with, you know, it's, it's not just like, he's like working out, right. Obviously like working out does something for your mental physical balance or whatever else, but this is a kind of like, this is a kind of working out that can save your life in a battle, you know, in a battlefield situation, you're learning a skill and it's a very particular skill. Yeah. Someone could, die or live based on based on your ability to do these things uh, I, I guess we don't really have you know this type of fighting isn't practical anymore I do think it's interesting that it it's it's something that's very the sword fighting it's very engaging um, it's all consuming and in the moment right and it's risky and there's a purpose connected to it. And I like the, the risk of life. And also here is work. Here's some, a skill to learn. And in many ways, Bardia is preparing her for her ultimate reign, right? And, and actual wars that will be fought. Um, but right now it's, it's having that adrenaline rush, having that risk. And there is, there are, I mean, at least anecdotally, people after loss or in grief can tend to pick up new, um, more riskier behaviors. Often there's less, there's a high tolerance for risk and sometimes even a seeking of it to be reminded of present moments and being alive. And you are not dead because you could have just died and you didn't, Mm -hmm. right? Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I guess also, I, I don't know that there's as much malaise and depression among um, people who do physical labor um, as, you know, as, as otherwise. I mean, certainly there's, there's some, especially if there's the, the physical labor doesn't like end up achieving anything or, or, or something like that. But yeah, this, this whole idea of, of sweat being the, you know, one of the kindest gifts of the gods is, is just really interesting. And it's very mm-hmm. much not Greek uh, or, or doesn't seem to be. So she, she tells Bardia um, about her plan to... Wait, 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 wait. Oh, oh what, sorry. What? I, don't, I don't mean to set the alarm, but we're missing no, one good. of the best things. Oh, please. Um, so, so first, okay, her appetite returns and that description is great. Um, and also I love, we get a lot of physical signs of how she's, how she's feeling, how she's doing. And the, the going into the dairy and drinking a bowl of milk, um, the first she'd ever really relished since the bad times began. So we find like this malaise began long before Psyche's sacrifice. Like it began way back when there was the beginning of the threat to them. Um, And then while she's there, Bardia, um, she overhears him speaking to another soldier 
and something she overheard that she wasn't meant to, uh, which is super poignant. Why, yes, it's a pity about her face, but she's a brave girl and honest. If a man was blind and she weren't the king's daughter, she'd make him a good wife. And that is the nearest thing to a love speech that was ever made me. That moment. Um, it's so poignant, but also mm. she, like her, there's shame in it and there's also pride. Yeah. 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 It's, it's very complex and really well done. Yeah. Yeah, it yeah. is. It is. It's a compliment to quote community, you know, part compliment, part insult. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, Bobardia means well. And he didn't mean for her to hear yeah. that, obviously. Right. And he was a good doctor. We get the description, right? This, this is the cure, not for her grief. She says, my grief remained, but the numbness was gone and time moved at its right pace again. Hmm. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Um, yeah. yeah. And then yeah. she tells Bardia about the Grey Mountain. And, and notice like what, what's also happening here is she is, she's kind of taking this quest upon herself and she's keeping it a secret from the king. It's not clear to me why other people in Gloom wouldn't feel that this was a worthwhile thing to do. But this seems to be something that she wants to do alone, right? At, at least at first, she's thinking about undertaking this whole journey alone and planning on doing this alone. Um, I think partly because she views herself as the only one who truly knows Psyche um and and the only one who mm. really she wants to invite to psyche's funeral right um in, in a way right? <laughs> yeah and oh, that's uh, and, and here she's um actually opening that up to bardia and sharing her plan with bardia and she's not like telling him to come with her but um but he insists anyway uh, help her and it, it's possible if she shared this with other people in gloom that they would have prevented her from going it's possible but uh it doesn't say so and you yeah know. but she, we we do know she doesn't trust the people in gloom right like right. in that opening passage we read she she's anticipating that she might be murdered or banished like something terrible was probably going to happen to her she thinks yeah. as soon as her dad dies so yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, because it's still this like kind of narrative of like, well, nobody, nobody likes me, right? Cares about me. Um, so, so Bardia tells her, um, you know, that he'll come along, and and he's like, how are you going to get away from the king? And he's like, oh, I'll spin the king a story easily enough. He isn't, he isn't with us as he is with you, lady. For all his hard words, he's no bad master to soldiers, shepherds, huntsmen, and the like. He understands them, and they him. You see him at his worst with women and priests and politic men. The truth is he's half afraid of them. This was very strange to me. Uh, <laughs> so again, like this other perspective on the king, you know, where we're getting, we're getting this one, you know, the king is not a, not a great person, but, um, but we're, we're getting, we're getting again, these, you know, moments where he might be an okay person, um, at least to some people. Yeah. Well, and we're getting Bardia's, wisdom right like his his practical wisdom and his pers his insight of he's as worse because he's afraid of women and priests and politics men because he doesn't understand them 
Mm -hmm. He's actually good with soldiers and dudes who work with the flocks. Dudes. He's good with dudes. Yeah. He's bad with women. It's a boys club in gloom. <laughs> Uh, but it's because he's he's afraid of like that that is interesting and disarming right so Oriol and Bardia six days later are setting out at the crack of dawn actually before the cracking dawn at the milking time of the morning which I love being almost as dark as night they are both on a horse together. They're passing the house of Ungit on their right. Um, and I love this description of the house of Ungit. Its fashion is thus great ancient stones, twice the height of a man and four times the thickness of a man set upright in an egg shaped ring. These are very ancient and no one knows who set them up or brought them into that place or how in between the stones, it is filled up with brick to make the wall complete. The roof is thatched with rushes and not level, but somewhat domed. So the whole thing is a roundish hump, most like a huge slug lying on the field. This is a holy shape, and the priests say it resembles, or in a mystery that it really is, the egg from which the whole world was hatched, or, or the womb in which the whole world once lay. Every spring the priest is shut into it, and fights or makes believe to fight his way out through the western door, and this means that a new year is born. There was smoke going up from it as we passed, for the fire before Unget is always alight. I found my mood changed as soon as we had left Unget behind, partly because we were now going into country I'd never known, and partly because I felt as if the air was sweeter as we got away from all that holiness. Um, mm. right, and that's the beginning of the gods kind of wooing her through this natural beauty right, that she encounters and through this new mood that comes mm -hmm. with it. Um, but that this description yeah. of the house of Unget before then is, is just so fascinating. And it's so gross and, uh, just opaque. Um, yeah. yeah. Like a huge slug. This is a holy shape. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, this yeah. is a holy shape. Okay. Yeah. And, and then the mystery, um, it resembles or in a mystery it really is the, the egg or the womb spring and the new year. Like it's, it's all mixed up in here. Yeah. 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 Uh, I can't help but think of, um, you know, Lewis's own revulsion for religion that he felt as a child, you know, even as he was kind of in love with these old myths. Right. And this isn't exactly the same thing, but there's, there's something romantic about her love of nature here that that definitely uh coincides with uh some of the way that lewis himself is wired um and and, and also this dislike of uh, i guess yeah like you're saying opaque uh ritual right mm -hmm. um and and her associating that opaqueness opacity i guess um uh, her associating that with um with misfortunes in her life that she blames the gods for right mm -hmm. that, that these things are to be identified with one another um the mystery of holiness and the darkness of holiness and then also the the misfortunes in one's life that one can kind of lay at the door of the gods right and and those things for her go together and just show how hateful the gods are um, but for other people we kind of see much later in the book um 
it's the very opaqueness of the religion um, that comforts people in the troubles that they experience. Um, it's 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 a really it's a really different reaction. Um, but we're we're not there yet. But it's but it's really uh, it's an interesting association that she makes that I think a lot of modern people make. Right? That um, you know we we're we're like well why you know if people people can like a lot of times be both really angry at God and also feel that religion is worthless uh, because God can't really exist. And if he did, <laughs> that's not the way people would worship him. Right. right. Yeah. I, I just remember, um, you know, having, having uh, a high school class and we did a seminar in the book of Job um, and, and the atheist kids in the class being really angry at the things that God did in the book of Job. And I, I, I was just kind of like, you know, and the Christian kids, of course, are like trying to defend everything that God did. Right. Which is kind of funny because it was the book of Job and you're not supposed to, you know, you know Job, that's why Job's friends get in trouble. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but the atheist kids were totally on the same page with Job, like blaming God for the stuff that, you know, he did by, by the end anyway. Um, but, but it was so funny because like, well, if you don't believe that any of this stuff is true, why are you so mad at God about these things that are reported in, in the, in the old right. Testament? Uh, it's just, uh, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Right. Well, there, I mean, there's nothing atheistic though for Orwell. I mean, her, this is why she has her complaint against the gods that she is glad we are reading um, that we will finally see her account and her story um, that she can lay it and and we can judge whether or not she was wronged. And that line of argument throughout, um, I think uh, just a little further when she goes up the mountain, the the sort of um, see what the gods do, they they fill us up with delight. Um, we, we are just their bubbles, right. Mm. That they, they blow up before they, they pop us <laughs> and yeah. completely deflate us. Right. Like, um, it's, it's very cynical, uh, and angry, but it, it also, she attributes everything to the gods, not just, mm-hmm. um, the holiness and the unget smell and the terror, but also the, the wooing and the delight of the mountain mm. and what she is trying to resist as it gets further in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. She talks about the struggle. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's the interesting thing about this character, right? Is that um, we tend to feel that there are two options that people have that, you Mm -hmm. know, number one, you can disbelieve in God um, or in the supernatural or whatever um, and feel like, more or less a distaste for it all, you know, and, and then too, you can believe and you love the idea of the supernatural or God or whatever. But Lewis has a character here who believes, absolutely believes in the gods. You know, this is before materialistic, uh, reductive sort of rationalism, but, um, but hates them and and dares to hate them, uh, which is, which is interesting. A, a, A little bit like, I remember, um, I think it was surprised by joy. Lewis was talking about writing a narrative poem from the point of view of Loki. 
and Loki defying the more powerful gods, you know, and, and that was the right thing to do. Um, and for, for young Lewis, right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I love, as we get into this, the, the description of the ride up the mountain and thinking of surprised by joy, but I, this is my first time in rereading it, thinking of, um, like I thought of uh, Diggory uh, riding Strawberry uh, in The Magician's Nephew going up the the cliff face, right? Where in that case, they needed a flying horse. Um, here, she needs Bardia and a good guy as a good guide. But um, the just the, the topmost crags, all the the beautiful colored world, the sky far away, the gleam of what we call the sea, a lark singing, but for that huge and ancient stillness. I, I think this might track, this description of the journey might track really well. I haven't looked it up, but with the magician's nephew and that ride, which is interesting. It makes me wonder if Lewis ever had a ride or um, if he had imagined one into the mountains like this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the more I'm reading this, um, you know, this time through the Narnia parallels have really kind of um, stuck out to me as well, you know, especially given, given some of the things that that come uh, next. Um, But, uh, but yeah, her, her decision against joy right here that, that no, I will be, you know, and it seems on its face to be, someone who's just very strong and independent minded and, you know, is just determined to do what she needs to do. Um, But in that determination, there's such a failure to be what humans are meant to be, right. Mm -hmm. Which, which are things that are, are filled with the goodness of, God, you know, as, as a mirror is filled with light as, as Lewis says in another place. Um, and, uh, it's, uh, I can't help but wonder if she didn't, you know, if she hadn't refused this sort of joyful mood, if she would have seen the house when she got to the top of the hill, um, I'm getting ahead of myself, but, but yeah, like I, I, I can't help but wonder if, if, you know, this is her rejection is choked. Yeah. The, the rejection was her choosing right. In the same way, um, in the great divorce, everyone who's in hell is choosing it actively, um, choosing the rejection of God, um, and, and choosing not to see the goodness or in Narnia thinking of, um, the dwarves at the end of the last battle who, Mm who can't see that they're in Aslan's country. Like they, they are actually physically in Aslan's country and they still think they're locked up in a shed and cannot receive what they're being given. Yeah. 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 There are so many moments in Lewis's work Mm. like that. Um, It's, it's really interesting. His um, what he does with perception and what he does with, you know, perception as it reflects, a heart response uh, yeah. to the divine um, and and how that does actually shape and change your perception so that two people can literally be in the same place but also be miles apart um, and of course again we're getting ahead of ourselves but yeah. Uh, but yeah the dwarves thing uh, 
the the scene where she's drinking from psyche's hands and and you know eating from her hands and psyche thinks it's a banquet and she thinks it's uh just you know psyche's hands and 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 water you know um is uh yeah. is, is 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 a lot like the dwarves except she's not eating straw um yeah but uh yeah it's interesting to her her motivation for resistance i mean she's she's mustering all her arguments to herself right of okay well i'm not a fool um i i know here's the litany of all the grievances i have against the god everything they've done to me the the despair of my life um and even though i'm so tempted to wander forever and see it's so interesting see strange and beautiful things one after the other to the world's end right like the invitation to look and see and to be open um and she she goes to well mere seemliness if nothing else called for it called for her resistance um i would not go laughing to psyche's burial if i did how should i ever again believe that i had loved her um the the vanity and pride uh, just of that word um and then oh reason reason called for it i knew the world too well to believe this sudden smiling what woman can have patience with the man who can be yet again deceived by his doxy's fawning after he has thrice proved her false i should be just like such a man if a mere burst of fair weather and fresh grass after a long drought and health after sickness could make me friends again with this god-haunted plague-breeding decaying tyrannous world i had seen i was not a fool i did not know then however as i do now the strongest reason for distrust the gods never send us this invitation to delight so readily or so strongly as when they are preparing some new agony. We are their bubbles. They blow us big before they prick us. Mm. Yeah, but just the um, appealing to her own pride and vanity. And it, it's almost like she's comparing herself and saying here, like, I, I won't be seduced, right? Like, I won't be yeah. cuckolded. I won't be, they, they won't trick me. Um, and that that underlying fear of being taken in, which Lewis is so good at, it it steals her against the illusion or against the reality. Absolutely, absolutely. It's it's such a great psychological study of this sort of um, yeah refusal of joy, and there and there's such a um, you know here she is here she is thinking about seemliness right mm-hmm. and what would be what would be right and there are so many other passages in lewis where like he he's trying to i don't know if recover is the right word but um sort of re-imbue the idea of pomp with kind of like a joyful connotation, right? Merriment, right? Yeah, our, our solemn yeah. merriment. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so that it's, it's like the type of seemliness that she's interested in is a sort of pale shadow of the real oh. pomp, right. Of, of, That's the, good. of or yeah. being uh, solemne, right. Uh, he, she, he, he talks about in uh uh, maybe preface to paradise lost, I think. Um, but, but yeah, somewhere. And, and also 
the one with uh, um, Jill, um, where Jill's uh, the silver chair, right? Where they put on their nicest clothes to be happy in, you know? Um, so he believes in sol- solemnity, right? He's not just trying mm-hmm. to do away with it, um, but it's more than just a refusal of joy. And if we view it as refusing joy, then obviously we're going to dispense with it at, at some point, right? Because it's not, yeah. it's not really what, what it is. It's interesting too, the, the seamliness. How could I, in her own mind, she's only worried about her own opinion of herself <laughs> uh, yeah. and, and what she would think. How should I ever again believe that I had loved her? Hmm. Right. Um, that it, it's a challenge to her identity as someone in control, as someone who mourned psyche and loved psyche. Yeah. Um, and that that also, it, it's like her own voice in her head judging or predetermined, like you, how dare yeah. you, don't you ever... Uh, which is so interesting um then getting in later to the conversation about shame with psyche yeah Yeah. and there's such a thread between this moment as well and and just to again i i know i'm i'm being reckless and self-indulgent in doing this but um but to refer again to another work by Lewis that is not this book, um, <laughs> um, The Great Divorce, right? I mean, this is, this is essentially what's going on throughout The Great Divorce. You have a character right. who's, who's come, come from hell and a character who is in heaven who's condescending to meet them um, and trying to convince them to just give up on yourself, right? Give up on, give up on um, all of your pride and all of your, you know, trying to do things in a seemly way or, or, or whatever else, and just accept the gift, um, just accept yeah. this joy and they can't do it one after another, but uh, except for this one guy, uh, but, uh, but yeah, yeah or you'll, <laughs> or can't do it either. Um, um, and uh, yeah, it's uh, and, 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 Yet there's still, you know, spoilers by the end of the book. There's redemption for her, um, but um, but but it's a it's a very difficult redemption. Yeah. So they they come to uh, they come to this valley, come to the valley where she was left, right? And all they see are the iron girdle and the chain that went from it about the gaunt truck trunk of the tree, right? Um, and uh, and that's it no clothing no bones no body no nothing and uh they're um just sort of mystified you know what it's 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 an empty tomb sort of scenario right um like there's there's um there's no body here you know and barty is like it's 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 not that she was eaten because animals don't just eat everything uh this is very very strange and they decide that to find her, they need to go past the tree, which even the priests don't go past the tree up to the, you know, up past the slope of a mountain. And there's a, there's a breadcrumb or a ruby. Dropped mm-hmm. Yeah. To give them the clue of which direction she was taken. Yeah. And, and they're, they're ascending this hill and they don't see, they don't really know where they're going to, mm-hmm. right? It's just sky above them. Right. As they're as they're sort of climbing this hill carefully, he said again, we may find we're on the top of a cliff any moment. And indeed, it looked 
for the next few paces as if we were walking straight into the empty sky. Then suddenly we found we were on the brow of a steep slope, and at the same moment the sun, which had been overcast ever since we went down into the Black Valley, leapt out. It was like looking down into a new world. At our feet, cradled amidst a, amid a vast confusion of mountains, lay a small valley bright as a gem, but opening southward on our right. Through that opening, there was a glimpse of warm blue lands, hills, and forests far below us. The valley itself was like a cleft in the mountain's southern chin. High though it was, the year seemed to have been kinder in it than down in gloom. I never saw greener turf. There was gorse in bloom and wild vines and many groves of flourishing trees and great plenty of bright water, pools, streams, and little cataracts. And when, after casting about a little to find where the slope would be easiest for the horse, we began descending, the air came up to us warmer and sweeter every minute. We were out of the wind now and could hear ourselves speak. Soon we could hear the very chattering of the streams and the sounds of bees. This may well be the secret valley of the gods, said Bardia, his voice hushed. It's secret enough, said I. Now we were at the bottom and so warm that I had half a mind to dip my hands and face in the swift amber water of the stream, which still divided us from the main of the valley. I had already lifted my hand to put aside my veil when I heard two voices cry out, One Bardia's! I looked. A quivering shock of feeling that has no name but his nearest terror stabbed through me from head to foot. There, not six feet away, on the far side of the river, stood Psyche. What? Great, great moments of, uh, of resurrection, right? Um, mm. Mm. The shock of feeling that has no name but his nearest terror. I feel like that's every do not be afraid in the mm. new testament yeah um yeah so good i remember the first time i read lord of the rings um and kind of skimming over a lot of the descriptions of um <gasps> of landscape no. um, yeah yeah it's true it's true i'm not proud of it but there it is um <laughs> Uh, it's, uh, it's a bit of a slog when you're, you know, when you're 13, Fair. but, uh, and, and, and in general, you know, what Tolkien's doing there is he's picking up on, they didn't have TV back then, the way that you saw natural things that you, you know, weren't directly privy to is through description, right? So there's lots and lots of that in the like novels that precede Lord of the Rings and all of that. Uh, the neat thing about Lewis here is that he's able to describe these beautiful vistas, but make everything so symbolic um, that nothing seems just sort of random. Um, mm. The like every detail of this mm. natural uh, beauty that he's describing has a meaning to it. Right. And it has like very, you know, the, this, this process of walking up, toward what seems like the sky, right? Which we've all sort of encountered when we've climbed a steep hill, right? Um, so we can identify with it, but at the same time, they are going to a heavenly place, right? They're going to a sacred place. Um, and then the, the way that this little, you know, this little valley evokes Eden so, so strongly, right? And, and this is the place where a parallel Eden is going to sort of play out. It's, it's yeah what's to... what's the meaning of the bees oh, i don't know i don't know uh, 
I can make something up if you want. I'm, I'm yeah. No, no, no. I love it. I just want to like, I, I do think it's very evocative, um, but I'm not sure what gorse is for. Yeah. I, I think it's well chosen and careful. I'm not sure everything is um, like allegorically. Oh so, no. Yeah. No, I don't yeah. think it's allegorically. Um, uh, it has allegorical significance. Um uh, because we all know that none of the Inklings ever wrote any kind of allegory <laughs> because Tolkien told them all not to. Uh, but uh, no, it's, it's not, it's not allegory, but it is, it is symbolic. Like it is. Um, Fruitfulness and. Yeah. 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 The, um, the description of the details. And wine. Yes. Yeah. 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 It has Sorry. a, has a meaning because it's the, it's a beautiful, fruitful place and, and you see things like bees and, I guess gorse and I don't even know what gorse is, um, but but you see it I'm in picturing bloom. Heather, yeah, 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 uh, in a in a nice sort of wild romantic version of Eden, um, and and then this moment of what what could have been eucatastrophe of her seeing Psyche again, and certainly in the moment seems that way, right? It seems mm. like this this thing that she's been mourning. I mean that this is Bardia has some great advice about what to do when you're depressed um you know and and the weather's nice but um you know resurrection is probably the best cure for the blues um at the end of the day and uh this is just uh yeah it's 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 so shocking and it's so you know it's one of those is everything sad going to come untrue sort of moments you know and uh, and and a real glimpse into reality you know, this is that this is what we believe as Christians, and and this is real, um, and and you know, God can help us accept it, right, and 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 not refuse uh, the the joy of it. Yeah, you, you want to make the choice of psyche and not the choice of Orwell. Yeah, well, um, yeah, psyche, and you know, in in chapter ten, psyche tells her story. Mm-hmm. She has a choice too, right? Mm-hmm. Wait, but what is her choice? <laughs> <laughs> I agreed well, with it, you before I before I uh, had much of a chance to think about it. When when she is waiting to die, um, and she was afraid, um, she couldn't remember her old her old dreams, her old fancies. Um, she was mm. first trying, she had the childlike dream, right? The golden amber palace. I was trying to cheer myself, um, trying to believe it, but I couldn't believe in it at all. I couldn't understand how I ever had all of that. All my old longings were clean gone. The only thing that did me good was quite different. It was hardly a thought and very hard to put into words. There was a lot of the fox's philosophy in it things he says about gods or the divine nature, but mixed up with things the priest had said too, about the blood and the earth and how sacrifice makes the crops grow. I'm not explaining it well. It seemed to come from somewhere deep inside me, deeper than the part that sees pictures of gold and amber palaces, deeper than fears and tears. It was shapeless, but you could just hold onto it or just let it hold onto you. Then the change came. Mm. Uh, and then she goes on to discuss the, the weather and 
the rain's coming and she links the weather with, with her own sacrifice. Um, and that's the moment where she, that inference she is choosing and knowing, right. So then I knew quite well that the gods really are, and that I was bringing the rain. Um, and it was, it's like the, her response to the sign from the gods of sending the rain that opens her eyes. I, Mm. I think that's because then she sees the West wind. Um, but we are getting way ahead of ourselves here in chapter 10. And I apologize. I just, no, no, that's, that's, that's such a great passage to highlight at the, at the front of it though, because I, I think absolutely. And that passage really stood out to me this time as well. Uh, you know, she is marrying the Fox's philosophy and his tendency to want to attribute good morality to the mm-hmm. gods, right. Um, with the priests realization that the gods are also so far beyond, beyond us that we can't hmm. understand what they're doing and we can't judge them the way that, you know, the way that we would um, judge ordinary people. But, but yeah, and then that moment where she is also blessed by her sacrifice, right? Um, mm-hmm. That um, because you, you, see the, you see the rain after human sacrifice and you think, of course, like, oh, well, this person has given their life so that we can have rain. I mean, I don't do this in everyday life because we don't have human <laughs> sacrifices we talked about last time. Um, but I mean, you, you think of a sacrifice as exactly that, a sacrifice. But here she is participating in um, the blessing yeah. that comes yeah. from her sacrifice as well. Um, and, and not, she's a martyr, but she's the farthest from having a martyr complex um, of, of anyone in the book, right? Oriole is the mm-hmm. one with the martyr complex. She's the one that's like, I must go without so that others can have, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that does not bring the reins, right? Um, but, but Psyche, yeah. good. Yeah, well, it's, it's her participation and her, 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 her receiving, right? Her waiting, yeah. she's praying to the gods. And when she is most thirsty, I mean, she's, animals are coming around and also thirsty and sniffing her and, and she is, is really feeling like it can't go on much longer. Her not being able to lie down, not being able to sit, just standing there tied to a tree um, without food or water. And the rain comes and she can cup her hands and she's able to partake. She's able to drink and be quenched. Um, And that, that gift too, not only that she, as you say, she's participating, but she's receiving in her own sacrifice, the blessing. Yeah. It's super cool. Yeah. We should probably backtrack just a little bit. Marty is really freaked out. Um, and he, <laughs> he's, uh, he's kind of, uh, you know, careful lady. It may be her wraith. It may, I, I, it is the bride of the God is a goddess, which I guess, um, Glomish people say that as well as Greek people, the I, I exclamation, or maybe it just caught on when the Fox came to Glow, <laughs> all of his Greek fashions caught on uh, in, in Glow, you know, so he's scared to death as I think most people would be, but she is so, she's been so close to Psyche her whole life that she, you know, needs to go to her. Right. Um, um, well, I wonder too. So 
the description, you could not blame him. She was so bright faced, but I felt no holy fear. Um, and then she remembers the familiarity, right? And, and she sees Psyche tanned by the sun and clothed in rags, but laughing. Um, and I wonder, do you think Bardia could see, do you think he saw Psyche as Orwell did in that moment? Or do you think he saw something else? I think he did because um, at first he says, it may be her wraith. And then he says, it may, and then he inter- interrupts himself with this interjection. I, I, mm-hmm. it is the bride of the God. It is a goddess. So at first he's like, it, it could, it could just be a ghost, but then he can't, he can't continue with that line because she does not look like a ghost. She looks like a bride of the God. Um, so I, right. Would, yeah. But do you, is, is he seeing her rags and her, mm. because she is psyche glorified here. And right. Orwell is prevented from seeing some of this glory or she's yeah. seeing through it, depending yeah. on your yeah. perspective. I don't um, know. But Bardia was God-fearing and like his worship, I mean, it's also his response is worship. He, yeah. he bends down, throws earth on his forehead, right? Like he's... Yeah. He recognizes his his frailty and his frame in this moment and says, like, I woe is me. I don't know how much he sees, but that's a great question. Yeah, because he he does not refuse joy, but he's also not got the blood of the gods in him, whatever that means, right? Um, and and I it's not clear whether that's just a gloomish superstition or whether that's something that's actually like Right. A real thing where only nobility, only royalty can sort of traffic with the gods in this way. Um, yeah. Whether, whether he sees rich clothes or rags as Oriwell sees. Um, yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a great question. I don't know. It's possible that he's just too freaked out by the whole thing, you know, in the first place to really take much notice of her clothing. I also don't know if the house would have been in, in view. I think mm-hmm. probably would have for him. Um, and I, I don't remember if, yeah, I don't remember if they get his opinion about what's happened after the fact right. or, or not. I, well, stay tuned listener. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> you know, she, she asks Oriol to come across. Oh, how happy I am. And good Bardia too. It was he that brought you. Of course I might've guessed it. Come Oriol, you must cross the stream. I'll show you where it's easiest. Bardia, I can't bid you across. Dear Bardia, it's not. And Bardia's like, no, no, blessed Istra. <laughs> and I thought he was very relieved. I'm only a soldier. <laughs> then in a lower voice to me, will you go, lady? This is a very dreadful place. Perhaps go, said I. I'd go if the river flowed with fire instead of water. Of course, said he. It's not with you as it is with us. You may have God's blood in you or you have God's blood in you, mm-hmm. right? I'll stay here with the horse. We're out of the wind and there's good grass for him here, right? So Bardi is a God-fearing man. And he's a God-fearing man in like a very practical sense, right? Like he, mm-hmm. does, he doesn't want to make the gods mad. Uh, and he's, you know, and he's, he, he wants to kind of keep away from them. Yeah. It's a, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting though that Psyche reinforces that. And she's like, no, this isn't for you, Bardia, to, to come. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, past the river. And of course, 
that corresponds or seems to with his actual nature, how much he does desire. He desires to get up to a point, but not to like this sort of spooky level, right? <laughs> of, of like hanging out with the resurrected princess, right? Who, <laughs> been transfigured. She pulls Oriole across the river or helps mm-hmm. her, um, you know, reach out for my hand. And Oriole is shocked by the coldness of the water, shocked all the breath out of me, right? Again, we have this natural thing that's obviously like symbolic, right? It's, it's symbolizing death. Um, mm-hmm. um, and the current was so strong that, but for Psyche's hand, I think it would have knocked me down and rolled me under. I even thought momentarily amid a thousand other things, how strong she grows. She'll be a stronger woman than ever I was. She'll have that as well as her beauty. Right. And then oh. she, she forgets it. But we have this like moment of right. the envy coming out. Right. right. Um, and uh, yeah. Um, but, but also this, this moment of, you know, her, her crossing the river and it sort of being like death. Like sticks. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and that kind of gets to what for me is one of the most befuddling aspects of this book um, is that it's a myth but it's a myth sort of being interpreted by people in the myth. So like the river is a river, but the river is also death, right? Uh, Because you cross it to get to this place of everlasting life, right? And health and, and, and peace and everything else, essentially to get to a second Eden or a, you Mm -hmm. know, or or a precursor to heaven or, or something like that. So the river, you know, the fact that it knocks the breath out of her, right. Um, it's like in some way standing for death or some way having a relationship with paradise that's analogous to the relationship of death with heaven or, or, or true paradise or, or whatever. But yeah, this sent me on this rabbit trail of like, okay, so to what extent are these things symbolic? To what extent are they <laughs> like literal, right? How is Psyche the bride of the God? Uh, like within the framework of the story, right? We know in Mm. Greek myth, like it's a very literal, like you're the bride of the God, right? Like, or, 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 you know, Roman myth in this case, um, like, yes, uh, you are married and copulating with the God and producing little demigods. Right. But Lewis is working in this, you know, this very well-known Christ in the church, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, marriage is a metaphor sort of thing. But in this case, it's a literalized metaphor. And the river is is a river, but it is also death. Psyche is Oriole, but also her sister. And I mean, know, but isn't that the the church? I mean, isn't that Aren't we all the bride of Christ and also members of one body? Yeah. Um, but if we, that reality, we use finite pictures to signify mm-hmm. that ultimate reality because we can't easily grasp it. It seems like from Psyche's story that the reality the the ultimate spiritual reality that things like a wedding night right symbolizes mm-hmm. right um, that it's it's not just symbolizing that reality but it's actually like a literal like wedding night right that that psyche is married 
to the god. Yeah, and and that psyche is Oriol, but also she's obviously not Oriol, right? Um, I, I mean, she's she's uh, she's Oriol's soul, but she's also a a like literal sister, right? Um, mm-hmm. So I sound a little bit like the fox getting out of patience with like things that the priest explains, <laughs> right? But it, it's it's just it, mostly it's just really interesting to me, and I'm trying to. I'm trying to figure out if this works, the the sort of blending of mm-hmm. pagan the, myth and Christian's like truth or I don't know that I have a problem with that. Um, yeah. I, and I don't have a problem well, with well, any no. of this. Ultimately, I think it's all yeah. really, really beautiful, but it's just fascinating, like the texture of this that um, are, are we are we do you think we're bringing in too much? Because I. Like with the river, I thought of the pearl. What is permitted and what is not when you are taken on a journey by a beloved someone mm. to heaven, right? Mm. Um, and the crossing of the boundary there, but also the crossing of the boundary and you know the river Styx and Hades. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, and baptism itself is crossing a river. Um, it's Israel crossing into the promised land and cro- like crossing out of Egypt, um, which were separate crossings, but we, we remember them both from slavery to freedom. Right. And, yeah. and from, from death to life, but in right. and through death. Right. And that's, yeah. Like, I'm not sure what river this is in, yeah. in all of those things. Right. Um, even like there, there is a lot going on and maybe that's okay. Just like blood and communion and wine um, are all going on at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, clearly it should puzzle us um, because God is puzzling. Right. <laughs> um, and, and shouldn't just work out neatly and easily. But I still want to ask those questions because it's a way to wonder about it, you know, and it's yeah. a way that it's a way to kind of try to trace. I'm not I'm not really demanding that it all makes sense, but I am just interested in how these realities are working with one another and mm-hmm. how in what way this yeah, in what way this le- this metaphor is uh, literalized um, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and in what way. Yeah, whether whether that does ultimately work or not, I, I I'm still, yeah, hmm. uh, I'll have some. Uh, hopefully, I'll have something more cogent to say. Uh, no, I I like this, and I I think it does it. work because you. This is sounding like Paul saying when he's talking about um, husbands love your wives uh, for your relationship is like Christ to the church. And mm-hmm. then he goes on and he's like, Oh, I'm, but this is a too big a mystery. I'm not talking about husbands and wives anymore. I'm talking about Christ in the church. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, mm-hmm. and like, there's, there is a shadow in, in what we have in, in marriage mm-hmm. in this life. And there is the substance. Right. Um, and what does it mean as Psyche has to be in this frame shadow for us in that, like, we don't actually know, <laughs> but she's also substance for Orwell of yeah. like, this is what it is to be married to a God. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe yeah. it's that dualism of, um, 
with the story frame, she is shadow and substance. Yeah. Yeah. I still want to turn that over in my mind for, for a little while, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I think, I think that's a, that's a good, um, that's a good explanation of, of an aspect of it. Probably. Why don't we leave the other half of this chapter for next time? Because it, <laughs> because it it's does. so good. It, it, yeah. it, it gels really nicely with what comes next like her her description of mm. shame and mm. and and then this moment of them just becoming enemies um all of a sudden but listeners we will get to the rest of this chapter of till we have faces uh chapter 10 uh next time um you can probably in a shorter amount of time than it takes to listen to our series on Till We Have Faces. We realize you could probably just listen to the book, but uh, these things are worth, you know. But the book doesn't invite you to ponder the mysteries of what does it mean? What does it mean that she's married to the God? I think it does. Um, at, at, at least a little bit. I don't know. <laughs> uh, uh, it invites me to anyway. So, we have a new feature in this podcast, which is our Inklings-related recommendations. Um, I'm going to give one. Uh, I don't know if Annika is or not, um, but um, but we're going to have Annika weigh in on something else um, in, Great. in a moment. So um, my recommendation this week is something called C.S. Lewis Doodle. It's not a new breed of dog. It is... <laughs> A, that was bad. Oh, <laughs> uh, no. Uh, it is a channel on the um, on on the YouTube, um, and uh, yeah, if you type in C.S. Lewis Doodle, it is um, a a really fantastic and difficult to describe describe illustration um, of his uh, you know of, of a lot of his essays um, uh, made in tandem with the audiobook reader i forget who um reading his uh his essays but it's it's fantastic um so i really recommend it if you're looking for something else uh c.s lewisy um to fill the empty hours that stretch before you um <laughs> so yeah um so Very i want to cool. i want to know annika oh. at- Go ahead. I, I do. I thought oh, of something. Great. Great, great, great. Um, i just started reading this biography of ruth pitter um, uh, and so this is like, not, I don't know if the purpose of Inklings Variety Hour recommendations is like, here's something you can just go find online real quick. Cause this is not that, um, I'm, I think it's in print, but it's not, there's not a lot, um, on her, but she, she was well known to the Inklings, um, had long correspondence with Lewis and, was the best female poet of the 20th century. Um, wow. Really, uh, really interesting person. And I had been fascinated by her from the letters, but had never read a biography of her before. Um, she came to faith, I think, from hearing Lewis uh, do his radio broadcasts um, mm. and then wrote him a letter as one does and, or one did with C.S. Yeah. Lewis and then uh, they struck up a friendship. So, and I, I had a professor once describe her as um, the woman who he should have married. 
which is, yeah, yeah. There are accounts of his friends saying if, if Jack were to marry, he should, he would marry a woman like that, but he isn't going to marry. And then of course joy happens. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. But that's, that's been a lot of fun and I'm, I'm really looking forward to the rest of it. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'll have to, I'll have to check that out as well. And I need to read more of her poetry. I've read, I've read a bit. There's a Malcolm Guite, um, a collection Ooh. of poems and it's got, it's got her in it for, for Advent. Um, and I forget which, which poem it is for. Yeah. But, but yeah, it's, it's great. Um, all right. So, um, Here's our goofy thing that we're going to do at the end of the episode. We've talked about songs that are related um, to this book. We've talked about types of sitcoms. We've talked about movie adaptations. Um, But these things have not drawn on either of our expertise, uh, our professional expertise. Um, Annika, however, Mm -hmm. is a lawyer. And so I'd like to know, Annika, what sorts of lawsuits uh, could characters in this book bring against other characters? Oh, wow. Uh, depends on the law of Gloam. <laughs> uh, so I think first, well, maybe not first, but right off the bat, um, defamation uh, against Redival for mm. Orwell. Um because she can point to the concrete um, loss of life uh, and reputation mm. uh, caused by Redival spreading word about her thinking that she's as good as a goddess and, and um, getting everybody in trouble in the, the way back times. For, for Psyche, right? And against, yeah. and against Redival. Yeah. Okay. Did I say Orwell? Man, I think so. I, keep on, I do that I, all the time. Oh, yeah. it's because uh, this it's book. because man. you also, also shall be psyche, Orwell. <laughs> um, so Shoot. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 Um, the gods might have a case for defamation against Orwell, uh, but they're probably not going to bring it. Yeah. Um, maybe alienation of affections, uh, b- broadly construed later on. Yeah. yeah 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 they have kind of a courtroom scene at the end don't they um from from what i remember mm-hmm. um yeah well and i i do think the book reads like a like a brief yeah it's her making her case of this is what happened um see see what the gods have done see how awful they are yeah yeah it's her complaint yeah, yeah. um very cool um All right. Well, everyone, thank you for joining us. I hope you enjoyed some of the, some of the new vistas (laughs) into this work that we have opened up. Um, And uh, um, you know, until next time. uh, time. Let, uh, let the thing that is deeper than fears and tears get a hold of you or you get a hold of it. Be be psyche and not Orwell. Don't, uh, don't resist. Uh, don't struggle against joy. Yeah. Yeah. It's good advice. Uh, all right. Thank you all. Bye. I don't know why I waved. <laughs> <laughs>
blessed encounter full of joy unscheduled on the decent plan with here an addict of Tolkien, there a Charles Williams fan.